Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Wild Precious Life is brought to you by Porter Square Books Boston Edition. A welcoming space to gather with neighbors, linger over books, read with kids, chat with booksellers, and feel part of the community. Whether it's an author series, book club, or regular story hour, we'll work to make it happen. Shopping with us also supports Grub Street, one of the nation's leading creative writing centers. By rigorously developing voices of every type and talent, and by removing barriers to entry, Grub Street fosters the creation of meaningful stories and ensures that excellent writing remains vital and relevant both in Boston and beyond. Learn more or shop online at portersquarebooks.com. And we're brought to you by Brain Lair Books a Black-owned, woman-owned children's bookstore located in South Bend, Indiana. At BrainLair, we partner with local schools and universities to help build an inclusive, welcoming community. We specialize in juvenile and young adult literature written by and for Black, Indigenous, people of color, LGBTQIA+, and disabled communities, as well as adult nonfiction about ending white supremacy, promoting anti-racism, and becoming a social activist. We can help you find the books you need. Drop by or browse online at shopbrainlairbooks.com. When I was a kid, we used to play this game we called Baby in the Air, which I now recognize was just a watered-down kind of dodgeball. But we'd take this big bouncy ball and throw it in the air I guess that was the baby. And then it was someone else's job to chase the ball, catch it, and throw it to tag another player. But sometimes, after a particularly lousy throw, my neighbor Stephanie would yell, Do over! And the game would halt, reset, and the thrower-catcher person would get another chance. I remember countless backyard arguments and scuffles over do-overs. Who got them and when? What was no fair? and who was going in the house to tell. As a semi-rulesy kid, I was not usually prone to offering second chances, which is funny, since as an adult, I feel like I'm all about them. We dropped our oldest daughter, Katie, off at college last week. This is my same baby who used to scream every time I sat her in the stroller. Ditto for the car seat, the baby swing, the crib. At bedtime, I often fell asleep reading to her awakening to see little Katie still perusing the pages of Fox and Socks or Junie B. Jones. Somehow this tiny girl is all grown up and living in a dorm in Boston. And while I've been kind of an emotional wreck about it, she's been great. And I realize it's because, in part, she's getting a do-over. COVID gutted her first years of high school. Debate tournaments turned into eight hours on Zoom. Dances were canceled. She still did all the academic work, but had way less fun. These patterns became ingrained, and it was hard to shrug them off. But now, college? It's the ultimate do-over. As adults, 
we don't get that many second chances. When I was a substitute teacher in Jacksonville, Florida, after a particularly lousy day when all the seventh graders were putting on makeup during choir and most of my eighth graders never came back from lunch, the school sent me a letter saying I was not invited back. Even with this show, sometimes when I rewind and listen, I think, huh, I wish I'd asked this, or why didn't I say that? But the moment is gone. No do-over. So one of my favorite features about this week's guest is his books are, in fact, do-overs. In both fiction and memoir, William Dameron writes about coming out as a gay man after years of marriage to a woman and what it looks like to start again with a great love affair in the second half of life. As adults, a lot of us are desperate for some do-overs, and we get to live them vicariously through Bill's books. William Dameron is the award-winning author of The Lie, a memoir of two marriages, catfishing and coming out. His work has appeared in The New York Times, The Boston Globe, and in the book Fashionably Late, Gay, Bi, and Trans Men Who Came Out Later in Life. His most recent project, The Way Life Should Be, is a novel, and it's out now. William, his husband, and their blended family split their time between Boston and the coast of southern Maine. William Dameron, welcome to Wild Precious Life. Thank you. It's great to be here, Anne-Marie. So you are a total stranger to me. We met like 20 seconds ago, and yet I, um, I've read your books, and so I have this parasocial relationship where I feel like I've journeyed with you. I feel like I've crossed the border from North Carolina to Virginia and back. I, I feel like I've looked out at the sky reflected in the tidal pools in Maine. Like, I feel like we've hung out before. So I'm <laughs> glad that you're here so we can actually start doing it. Thank you, Anne-Marie. And we have hung out before, but you didn't know it. I was <laughs> I was an audience <laughs> member at AWP, and that's when I fell in love with you. So, <laughs> Oh, my gosh. All the feelings. And it's so early. Yeah, that was, that was a fun room. Well, I'm glad to just continue... Um, to continue the party here, but not everyone is like caught up on our journey together. So I would love it if you would just, you know, I'm going to call you Bill because we've already moved from William to Bill. Um, I'd love you, if, Bill, if you would just tell folks a little bit of your story. Sure, sure. Um, I think the part that people would want to hear starts with um, an email that I got out of the blue um, probably about seven years ago now. And the email was, the first line was, your face has meant a lot to me, but now I've found out it's a lie. Um, I would have considered that spam um, because that's the way an email starts out from somebody you don't know. But it was really written well. There were no links to erectile dysfunction pills, nothing like that. <laughs> um, and then I received a second one, and it was from another woman who said... Um, that somebody from Plenty of Fish had reached out to her and used my profile picture. So I went back to the first email, replied, and found out this woman had a four-year online relationship with someone um, who was claimed to be somebody they were not. And they used my profile picture to catfish her. And as it turned out, it was a global catfishing scheme. The irony, of course, was I had pretended to be somebody I had not. I was a gay man in a straight marriage. I think it was poetic justice. And 
after I came out, I decided to write that story and to tell my story and looking at it through the lens of catfishing because it, it allowed me to look at my story not just um, from my viewpoint, but from how the people who experienced me looked at my story. And um, that book was called The Memoir of the Lie. That's right. And so I've, I've read that one. I've, I feel like, oh, gosh, 2018, 2019. I don't, I don't know. The pandemic has everything gluey. So it was either yesterday or five years ago. I'm not sure. Yeah. Um, right. But your mem- <laughs> so you, you rose to prominence with your memoir, The Lie, as you say, about coming out after you know, a more than 20-year marriage. And now you have a new book out. Yes. It's a novel, The Way Life Should Be, about uh, two men trying to navigate well, an assortment of midlife challenges. I've, I've read them both in your in your memoir. It felt like you were um, you were unburdening, right? Um, you're admitting some often very uncomfortable truths. Not, not that not just that you left a marriage, but that you left daughters in that marriage um, who were confused and angry that you'd that you'd used steroids that you'd never told anyone. There's a lot of uncomfortable truths that you just put it all out there. Um, And in this book, The Way Life Should Be, we get um, a fictional story. Thomas and Matt, uh, married men who are attempting to, you know, raise adult children and take care of aging parents and navigate wacky neighbors. There's a lot of drama in this book, but it's like other people's drama, not not yours. I'd love to know that what was it like to write both books? Differences, similarities? Like, was one easier because you were holding the story at a distance, or was it harder to find your way in? Talk to me about these two experiences. It's interesting. I had always written nonfiction or, you know, began with nonfiction. And so I had that structure and was like, okay, I can navigate the world using the structure. Fiction was anything can happen. And so what I decided to do was to look at what it's like for the children who are sort of left, not left behind, but when their parents come out, how do they navigate the world and what have they had to deal with, you know, that collateral damage. Um, And really the generational trauma that we sort of pass down. The way life should be is Maine's state motto. So I've set the story in Maine. And so it works out perfectly that that's the title because Maine is really a character in this book. Maine is steadfast, the rock, always there, never changing. But you have this family in flux that comes together one summer because Thomas and Matt, these two fathers, have married. They're in a wonderful marriage. They have the second half of their life together. They build a cottage And it's their second chance marriage. But um, all of the kids show up one summer for an unintentional family reunion. And then they have to confront the past. And they have to confront it in a tiny cottage by the sea where you can't escape each other. Um, And it was really fun to go there with fiction. I have to say, I really like writing fiction now. Yeah, because you can take the twist the, the fiction you could take the truth and like twist it. You can you can start with something yes. that's real. I do this all the time in my stories and it freaks my husband out. But I'm just like, I will take 
of fight that we had and even steal a line from it. And then just like knives are flying. He's like, there were no knives. I'm like, I know. I just was playing with it on the page. You just you can take it as far as you want. Um, but it, it scares him. So, I mean, the I, the story of combining families <laughs> is like one I've seen on television. I'm thinking of Modern Family. I'm thinking of the Brady Bunch. In fact, one of the last names in your book is the the Brady Bunch, a little uh, tip of the hat. Um, but also this idea of what we pass on to our children, whether we mean to or not. One of the about one of the daughters in the book, you write, quote, Abby chooses boys who will treat her badly because of her father. Abby chooses boys in a pattern meant to repeat what she feels her father did to her hoping that this time she won't be abandoned. Oh, that was chilling. Like we often repeat patterns we witnessed and experienced in our own parents' relationships, things we never wanted to do, but we we bring them into our own relationships and then we pass them on to our kids, don't we? Yes, we do. <laughs> and I've certainly done the same. You know, it's funny when... I came out at 43, so it, I my kids were older when I came out, and so there was already all the things that I had done and passed on to them, and a lot of people think, oh, when you come out, you sort of shed all that. It takes a while. There are a lot of doors to go through, and you come out and come out and come out, and it's not just gay parents who have to come out. It's... Um, there's another character in the book, Annie, who um, had a high school bully and it always affected her. And the funny thing is I use um, the term the Grimace, which is a McDonald's character. She was called the Grimace because she wore a purple sweater and she was larger as a child. And that affected her for the rest of her life. And um, so... As parents, we all do things. We all sort of pass on our insecurities to our kids. And we can't really help them until we confront those demons ourselves. Yeah. Yeah. We talked to Lori Gottlieb, who's a therapist and a writer. And I wrote down one of her quotes because it was resonating, resonating with me. She said, it's not that people want to get hurt again. It's that they want to master a situation in which they felt helpless as children. Right. They're like, this time it will be different. I will go back. But by engaging with partners who are going to hurt them, like they're doing the same patterns that they they swore they weren't going to do. Like you actually continue to feel inadequate. And we see um, not just not just Abby doing that, but, you know, with others in the book as well, because everyone in the family has has a secret. I mean, like you said, they're living in this tiny cottage. So for folks who haven't met it. Matt and um, Thomas, they they have this cottage in Maine. They they decide to move Matt's ailing parents, um, especially his his father Pops, who's been has like a a degenerative disease similar to Parkinson's. They they've moved them up there to be caregivers, and then also like you like you alluded to, the the adult children just <laughs> end up back, and it's a tiny. I, I pictured this as like a two bedroom. Like Thomas and Matt have one bedroom and all the children, all the adult children are are in the other. There's one bathroom. There's a tiny galley kitchen and a tiny living space. And that is it. They are, like you said, on top of each other. And yet they all have uh, secrets. One uh, is afraid she's pregnant. Another is 
questioning his own sexuality. Somebody else is hiding in an eating disorder. There's alcoholism. There's some light infidelity that the members of this family love one another fiercely, um, but they do not trust one another all the time with um, with their truth. <laughs> and yet your book was called The Way Life Should Be. Yeah. I, I read most of it without knowing that that was the main state motto. So the whole time I was like, is this an ironic title? Or are you <laughs> suggesting that all families just keep secrets and that's the way it is? Talk to me about this title. Yes. <laughs> yes to both of those. It is ironic. It's also... Um, I don't want to give away a lot. That's right. It, we it, won't it, tell that there's. We won't mention the alien explosion at the end and how they all to New Jersey. We won't tell people that because that would give them the wrong idea. <laughs> yeah, it really is the way life is and the way that life was, and you know we can't change what we've done in the past. Um, we can't change what we've experienced and why would we because it would bring us to a different point in life and i this family does love each other fiercely and their parents have cared for foster children and taught their kids how to care for people but they don't always care for themselves and they have to learn to do that. And by learning to do that, then they can pass that down to their children. So their children will do the same. You know, somebody told me once care is a boomerang, it comes back to you. And I was trying to show that in this book as well. You know, here are these two parents, Thomas and Matt, who create this set of rules the cottage rules, to keep everyone who's living on top of each other from um, killing each other after this one summer of glorious time in Maine. And it's, it's, a, it's the way a lot of families live, you know. You go on these vacations, the whole extended family is there. Hey there! I'm Hannah. And I'm Audrey. We are a sister filmmaking duo and co-hosts of Sleepover Cinema, our show where we analyze the films that created the collective unconscious of the girls, gays, and theys of the late 90s and early 2000s. Princess Diaries, The Cheetah Girls, Aquamarine, Cinderella, the one starring Brandy. We haven't stopped thinking about these movies since we first saw them, and we want you to rewatch them and review them with us. Are these movies as bad as critics would have us believe? Do we even care if they are? We are always unpacking that very question on Sleepover Cinema. Check out Sleepover Cinema wherever you get your podcasts or at evergreenpodcast.com. See you soon. Can we talk for a moment about the cottage rules. In your book, you have this these notes at the beginning of the chapters, and you, you tell us at the beginning, like, this is a book of fiction, but the cottage rules are actually taken from, from something real, I believe, that your partner did. You know, there are things like, tidy your bed every morning, don't leave your dishes in the sink, the bathroom is by appointment only. Um, tell us about these rules, where did they come from, and what were you intending by putting them in the book? 
The rules ended up being sort of a framing device for each chapter. And I told you before, I had always written nonfiction. So this was my first book of fiction. And it was interesting. This, the sets of cottage rules um, my husband Paul had created um, when some of our kids were up here with us in Maine. And uh, he did make them read them publicly. And it was hilarious. And we all laughed about it. And... I thought, you know, that this is really the way it should be. You know, we need to laugh about establishing these rules. So even when you're kind of on top of each other and there's all this other sort of trauma, you can still laugh and have fun. And that's the best way to approach things. So I set up these rules in between each of the chapters as a very loose framing device for the chapters. Uh, my kids still laugh about them, and and actually we add on to them all the time, so they're constantly growing. <laughs> but no matter how many rules you set up, someone is going to do something wrong, and you're not going to be able to catch everything. Um, and that's how they came into being for the book. And it's the only thing my husband will ever publish. So. <laughs> That's right. You mentioned that. Yes. So I had to sit with the rules. Some of them are very um, matter of fact, stuff that most people in most houses are trying to deal with. But like one was like the shower maximum is 7.6 minutes. And I tried it and I blew right past that. That was that seven points. That's a quick shower. It is a quick shower. I got to condition this curly hair. One bath towel a week. I looked at my children's floor. There were at least four towels in there. Um, and the the one with the shoes. What was the one? Oh, one set of one shoes. One pair of shoes the, or yeah. flip-flops per person. I went and counted by my back door um, right before I came up here to my attic to record with you. I counted 22 pairs of shoes by our back door, and there's only five of us in the house. We were in violation <laughs> big are. time of these cottage rules. Do not tell your partner. Um, but it actually it got me thinking about – so this framework is so fascinating because, like, are these rules ever really – enforceable, right? Because like another of the repeated mantras in your book is this quote, we make a place for everyone, whether they drop out of college or not, whether they follow the rules or not, we make a place for everyone. And I think that's what that's what families do, right? We set up these rules because this is like ideally <laughs> how life should be. But there's always going to be someone either on purpose because they don't care, you know, screw the rules or because you know, in the case of, of Pops in this book, his body is failing him. He can't he can't even remember the rules. Or, or when someone is in crisis, they know what the rules are, but they're, you know, they're curled up in a ball. So, um, you know, sometimes no matter the rules, you can't assure a safe world. You can't protect the people you love from harm, no, no matter how many rules. I see Matt in the book really struggling with that. Yes. Um, Matt is the type who um, would be an engineer and wants to control everything. He wants to control his father's illness, which is progressive supranuclear palsy, um, which, as you said, is a close cousin to Parkinson's. Um, but it robs you of your muscle movement, your voice, all of that. So Matt thinks if I can set up, um, you know, handles and safeguards everywhere, that that's okay. His father is going to be fine. And that's the way that he clings to those rules. 
Um, what he doesn't realize is that no matter how many handrails he puts up, his father is going to fall. It's going to happen. Ultimate, ultimately, it comes down to the golden rule. Treat others as you would treat yourself. But until you know how to treat yourself and to love yourself, you can't really practice that golden rule. Yeah, we see, I see both Thomas and Matt in this book. It's like they're still punishing themselves. Like they left a marriage. That happens all the time. It happens all the time. But but because they left a marriage because they were gay, it's like they they have to extra punish themselves. And so Matt's way of punishing himself, himself doesn't look like it to us, right? He's like, he's like, super caregiver. I will take care of everyone and then I'll make up for it somehow. And Thomas, you know, is racked with guilt and sometimes is having these panic attacks. But it's like they can't can't let go of this thing they did that time. And it just it it travels with them. And they're in the most, oh, the most difficult of circumstances, not just um piled in there with their kids, but you know, another subject with a book, as you alluded to, is this what it's like to be middle-aged and not just raising adult children, but caring for aging parents. I have been pretty solidly in this phase of my own life for about five years. My father passed away um, during the pandemic of terminal illness and Parkinson's, but now I'm taking care of my mother. And I can attest to the horrible familiarity of how much you got right in your book, that feeling of overwhelm, you know, of, of knowing you're spread too thin and just trying to do more anyway, especially in the face of this inevitable outcome. Like, if we are lucky, if we do everything right and put up the handrails and take the notes of the doctors and get the prescriptions right, if we do everything well, we're going to outlive our parent and watch them die. Like, that's the that's the outcome that's coming. Um, do, did you have experience with this? Is that where you're writing from? Because you got so much of it exactly right. Yeah, I did. That, that um, part, we actually did care for my husband's parents during the pandemic because you couldn't put them in a nursing home during the pandemic. That meant certain death. And so as um, Paul's father-in-law, who did have progressive supranuclear palsy, just failed and failed, um, we couldn't we couldn't get home health workers either because it was the pandemic. And so we took care of him. And um, it was incredibly difficult. And, and ultimately, we lost him. We lost his mother last year. And I'm so sorry. Oh, no, thank you. It, it was a tough year. I also had open heart surgery. Good Lord. So, I didn't see um, that in the book anywhere. Okay. No, that was not a part of the book. Um, the next I was book. actually, yes, I was finishing this book um, as I had the surgery. And it was kind of interesting to see the way that art imitates life, imitates art, um, because one uh, Thomas in the book has something that I call a near miss. You know, a near miss is when you almost die and then you realize how precious life is. And that's what happened to me. That is not a part of the book. That's a part of my life. How are you now? Are you doing okay now? I'm great. I have never felt better. It, it turned out I... I I had 100% occlusion of one artery and then 
All the others were 90%. So it was a quintuple bypass. I didn't know we could do a quintuple one. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I went for the full load, full boat. <laughs> let's just let's just fix them all. And I am better than I ever have been. That will certainly show up in another book. But this is what we as writers do. We absorb everything and then we use it. And we look at it and try and figure it out. We don't just report the events. We try to make sense of that. And that's what I did in both of my books. Well, I'm glad that your health is is on the men there. I heard um, Garth Greenwell, um, a writer I admire, uh, talk about his own horrific health episodes during the pandemic, what it was like to be in hospital dealing with your own, you know, horrible stuff at the same time that you don't have COVID. And so everyone's running on fumes and they're all afraid of one another and they're trying. And he's just in the hospital trying to get um, care. But he he has a book coming out. I want to say it's next year uh, about what it's like to be in hospital, like powerless during the most difficult time. And he's trying to figure out if he can write a book only from a hospital bed where there is no action other than the the people coming in and out of your door. Um but your your situation reminds me of that. And if he doesn't manage to do it, then you should do it too. Write this down. I, I was going to say that's what we do is we take. Um, so Betty is a character in the book and DJ are characters. And, and Betty, for me, was the per- personification of the pandemic, you know, of this sort of um, the capricious nature of calamity that is always sort of on the periphery. And I wanted to sort of show, okay, what happens when somebody is left unattended and DJ is kind of the personification of rules. Um, And those were the characters in my book. So it's interesting the way that we sort of experience life and then change it to fit into books. They were also very familiar. These are some of the the wacky characters who are the neighbors in your book. They were also familiar to me because sometimes when you're in your family, you could just wish that everyone would just go away and you could be alone. And these were two characters who were alone and in some ways, I think, wishing that they could be part of this tumultuous family that they were seeing. You wrote a, a number of beautiful things. I'm just I'm looking at one of them. Uh, quote, sometimes we carry other people's memories because the burden becomes too heavy for one person to bear. And sometimes we carry their memories to bear witness so that they may never fade away. I mean, you were writing this about Thomas and Matt, the couple in our book, but I also feel a little bit like this when when I write a story down. Sometimes I think books can carry the burden of our memories. Have you ever found that to be true in your writing? Absolutely. Yeah, they do. It's a way to be remembered, to live on after you're gone, or a way for those things that we have learned to live on forever. And there were things that were passed down to Thomas and Matt from his parents, how they cared for kids, how they cared for these foster children. And I was thinking about these foster children who for a brief moment found respite in Grammy and Pops's house and how they shouldn't be forgotten either, Um, how their stories are just as important. And um, that's what we do. We carry their stories and we internalize them and we remember them. But sometimes people fall down um, like pops with progressive supranuclear palsy. And so we physically carry them as well. But we remember who the person was inside. 
Yeah. No, that's that's very true. That's very true. Um, Thomas has this moment. I want to say it's a little earlier in the book when he's thinking about his life. And it could be later too. But, but talking about like there was a time in his life where he felt like he could – none of it was going to work out. He was married to a woman even though he was gay. He was raising children and feel like he wasn't getting it right. Like he never dreamed – and, and he he came from a family that when he told his family they that he was gay they they ostracized him so like Thomas sits there with this this big bubbling family now in Maine he's married to the love of his life he's got these beautiful kids he's surrounded by love and he's like it says something like it hits Thomas then the reason he's so verklempt he has everything he ever wanted the life he never dreamed possible. Where does it go from here? I'm 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 wondering if you have any like kinship with Thomas. Like you you too like left left this this other time in your life and you've come and you've written these books and you're living the dream and you have this cottage in Maine. You know, uh where do you go from here? So I think that's it. When you grow up in the closet, your your thinking gets modified. It's if somebody finds out I'm gay, the worst possible thing will happen. If I come out, the worst possible um, conclusion will occur, and that affects your thinking. And so even when you leave the closet, you can't, your thinking doesn't just suddenly get modified. It's always whatever is coming at you, then the worst possible thing is going to happen. You're galloping all the way to the end of the road to the worst possible conclusion. And that's what I see. And that is my kinship with Thomas is he's got everything he ever wanted. What's going to be taken away? Because it can't possibly be so wonderful. Yeah, my heart breaks for him. And I, I you mentioned it earlier in this conversation, but it was also in the book and I'd never really thought about this. We always think the phrase coming out of the closet as though there's that single door. And you, I, I, possibly it was in the memoir, but again, you talked about it here that like, quote, there was more than one door to open. There were five, ten, a hundred that, that you're always opening doors, that you're always like unearthing yourself, that you're always figuring out, you know, uh, what was the RuPaul the the RuPaul line in the book, like in the mortal words of RuPaul, girl, you need to love yourself before you can love anyone yeah. else. <laughs> yeah. If you don't love yourself, how in the hell are you going to love somebody yeah. else? Yeah. It's, it's actually a quote that uh, my stepdaughter loves. She loves drag race. And so <laughs> I think that's exactly right. You've got to learn to love yourself before you can really love and treat others the way they should be treated. So what's next for you? What are you working on now? What can we look forward to down uh, the pipeline? I actually have two books that I'm working on. One is uh, historical fiction. And again, I'm using nonfiction as the structure because it's loosely based on my great uncle, who was a gay man um, and moved from Minnesota to San Jose in the 1930s. He went off to war, and I have woven in this story. He has an unlikely friendship with a Japanese-American woman, um, and it sort of takes place during the Cold War era. 
So that's one that I'm working on. The other one uh, I'm using again, <laughs> we talked about my quintuple bypass. Mm -hmm. And it is about a man who lives in Florida and has a bypass surgery and he wakes up. He does. He wakes up from surgery. He wakes up physically. He can smell different scents, like the essence of a person. Like a person might person might smell like a pine tree, or this person might smell like ashes. And he's not quite sure why that's happening, but his senses are all waking up. And I'm titling the book "Woke" because it takes place in Florida. Um, and I have to portray all the craziness of Florida, man. Um, so that's another book that I'm working on as well. And I'm just super excited to be working on both of them. Wow. Those both actually sound, first off, they sound very different. Yes. But second, those sound like um, great ideas. Well, you have to come back and tell us about them. Um in the years, however long it takes. <laughs> um, we always close with some, just some fun fan favorites, just quick questions to get, you know, another look at the writer behind the books. Uh, you ready for our wind down here? I am. All right. This first ones are just multiple choice. Uh, coffee or tea? Coffee. Mountains or beach? Beach. Dogs or cats? Dogs. Are you an early bird or a night owl? Wow. And I can only pick one. Um I'm an early bird rider, but I'm a night owl in terms of I don't want to go to bed. <laughs> all right. No sleep at all. Um, 50 cents in the club or don't go chasing waterfalls by TLC? Oh, well, that's so hard. I like 50 cents in the club, but I actually use <laughs> don't go chasing waterfalls by TLC in my book. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I love. Yeah, I love TLC. All right. Um, 867-5309 by Tommy Tutone or Living on a Prayer by Bon Jovi. 867-5309, uh, <laughs> which is also in my book. Did these come from my book? Or did you just... <laughs> I, I mean, who even knows? Who could say? I have two, a few more. Um, Meryl Streep and the Devil Wears Prada or Julie Andrews and the Sound of Music? Uh, Meryl Streep and the Devil Wears Prada because I actually yeah. use that all the time. That's all. I know. That's all. Nope, nope. That wasn't a question. Uh, I I don't care about fashion at all, like zero a percent, but I cannot not watch that movie every time I see it. Same. It just, I, The Devil Wears Prada, I love so much. I was actually standing behind Stanley Tucci in line for a train recently, and I was losing my mind just like, Oh my god! Like I couldn't, I couldn't not fangirl, but I didn't want to be that person, so I didn't say anything. But the whole time I was like, "He was instant." Like, are we doing a weird before and after that I don't know about? Oh, so. We we quote that movie all the time in our house. So. <laughs> Love it. Um, are you a risk taker, or are you the person who always knows where the band aids are? Um, I would say I'm a risk taker. Yeah. All right. This is a fill in the blank. If I wasn't working as a writer and or IT guy, I would be a, if you had a little magic, what would you like to be? I would be a concert pianist. Ooh, do you play the piano? I do. Yeah. Yeah. I actually majored in music before finance. I do think there are some pianos that tiptoe through the book, but I don't think there's a lot of music. I don't think I knew that. Oh, excellent. What's, um, what's a concert pianist? piece that you 
liked to play or liked to play? I played Liszt a lot, Brahms and Chopin, but there was a Brahms intermezzo that just lives in my head forever that I used to play. So the romantic period. Wow. I too play the piano, but I maxed out at the the Pink Pony Waltz. It was like sun, sun, <laughs> and rain. We'll, we'll get together once. We'll, we'll make some music. Uh, you will be better. Um, okay, what's something quirky that folks don't know about you? A like, a love, a guilty pleasure, a pet peeve. Ooh, something quirky or things that don't something people don't know about quirky. you. I, I feel like everybody knows everything about me because I've written a memoir mm-hmm. and I kind of it's it's kind of out there, isn't it? Yes. Oh, I well, it's not that quirky, but. Um, I love Japanese wood blocks and I used to collect them. That's not really that quirky. No, no, no. That is quirky. Okay. I'm going to be dumb here. What's a Japanese wood block? Like I know what all those words mean individually, but when you put them together, I can't picture what that is. Yeah. If you think of, I, I know you've seen the image of the wave, which is this. Yeah. The, yeah, uh, the... yeah that's a Japanese yes. wood block. It's also okay. known as ukiyo-e. Which, um, so I guess I have a love affair with Japanese culture and history, which may play into why I've got a Japanese-American woman as a character in one of my books. All right. Uh, That painting, or not painting, that that woodblock image um, factors into Gabrielle Zevin's Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow Mm, quite a bit. Uh, So that's on my mind. Okay, I have um, two more for you. What's your favorite ice cream? Uh, mint chocolate chip. Refreshing, absolutely. And last one, if we were to take a picture of you really happy and doing something you love, what would we see? Probably me walking on the beach. Uh, shoes on, shoes off. Shoes off. Gotcha. Love that. Well, Bill Dameron, thank you so much for making time today in your recent book you write about this family with shame and secrets and sorrow and you also write quote from a certain vantage point this is a love story thank you for inspiring all of us to like find the love in the crevices to to find the tenderness in the despair it's there i just think sometimes we we forget yes thank you for having me Folks, William Dameron is the author of the memoir, The Lie, and his latest book is a novel entitled The Way Life Should Be. You can find both of these books wherever you like to find books at your local indie store, at the library. And to everyone listening, we're wishing you love and light wherever the day takes you. Be good to yourself, be good to one another, and we'll see you again soon on this wild and precious journey. Wild Precious Life is a production of Evergreen Podcasts. Special thanks to executive producers Gerardo Orlando and Michael D'Aloya. Producer Sarah Wilgrube and audio engineer Ian Douglas. Be sure to subscribe and follow us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. You've got questions, we've got answers. Business leadership, ownership, and sales can be challenging. Tune into the Accelerate Your Business Growth podcast to learn from the world's experts. Join me, your host, Diane Helbig, as I chat with people who have expertise in various areas of business. You'll enjoy the lively conversations that are focused on providing you with the ideas, tips, and suggestions you need to realize greater success. 
Get what you need for your business when you need it from the people who have the answers. Accelerate Your Business Growth is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network and is available on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast.